sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, navigating medical odysseys from the perspectives of both the patient and the doctor. But first, I have a simple sound quiz for you. When you hear this sound, what animal do you believe is making that sound? If you answered horse, then you're like most of us that readily assume that the most likely answer is the correct answer. But what if I told you that the correct answer is zebra and not a horse? This question encapsulates one of the most common axioms that doctors are taught when diagnosing patients. The saying goes like this. When you hear hoofbeats in the night, look for horses, not zebras. You see, zebras are a medical slang term for rare conditions. The logic goes like this. When evaluating a patient, a physician must consider common diagnoses before rare ones because common things are common. So when a physician hears about symptoms that can be explained by a common diagnosis, the common diagnosis is usually the correct one, not the rare diagnosis. But here's the rub. What if you have a rare diagnosis and the entire healthcare system is predicated on common diseases? Well, rare diseases now have a formal definition. According to the Orphan Drug Act, a rare disease is a disease or condition that affects less than 200,000 people in the United States. On average, it takes 4.8 years and more than seven specialists for a patient with a rare diagnosis to get an accurate diagnosis. The ensuing diagnostic journey is not only exhausting for patients and their family members, but also burdensome, costly, and inefficient for the healthcare system. Most importantly, for progressive rare diseases, that's 4.8 years to delay treatment and worsened outcomes. As one patient described it to me, it's like you're a Dorothy in Oz and desperately trying to get to see the wizard for an answer. So today we delve into medical odysseys from both patient and doctor perspectives by focusing on two rare conditions. Joining us to start this discussion is Madeline Levithan. She has eosinophilic esophagitis, an allergic condition that affects the esophagus. She even created a blog on the topic. She joins us now from Philadelphia. Madeline, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's so good to have you. Well, first of all, let's ask the most obvious question. How are you doing now? Yeah, so... 
I'd say I'm doing pretty well for where I'm at in my story. However, I'm still trying to navigate my overall treatment. So there's definitely still um, some more good days and bad days, but still, you know, finding my way through this illness. I got it. And I'm glad to hear that at least uh, it's on the more positive upswing. Uh, Madeline, when did your symptoms start? Yeah, so uh, I would say my symptoms started almost 10 years ago. However, they were at various forms and different levels of severity. What were those symptoms? So when I said um, different levels of severity, I would say they were more on the lighter side um, in my youth. So I'm 22 years old now. So um, aging from when I was 11 to 19, I would say it gets food stuck in my throat um, and forms of regurgitation. However, those symptoms started to um, stop me from being able to thrive as a human, where recently my symptoms um, transformed into things like shortness of breath, um, regurgitation, a lot of indigestion issues leading to consistent vomiting. Um, and then the unintentional weight loss was almost the, the final nail in the pin that made me more concerned about what was going on here. So when you say regurgitation, you say, is that, is that what you mean, vomiting? Or you mean choking, a little both? Yeah, I would say a little bit of both. Um, definitely vomiting up foods as whole as how I would eat them, right? Um, and then other forms where it would be more of like a, a spit up or almost like I was choking on a food, right? And it wasn't able to extract from how I ate it at the beginning. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> that sounds so miserable. Uh, when did you seek treatment? At what point did you say, you know what, I really need to get this checked out? Yeah, so I definitely would say uh, part of it stems from my level of maturity, right? So when I was 11 years old, um, my parents took me to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um, to get things checked out as they were naturally concerned. Um, I almost convinced myself to start saying like, you know, I feel better, right? Because I remember the doctor sat me down and said, all right, let's, let's do this thing called an upper endoscopy. And I was more afraid of the needle going in my arm instead of, okay, maybe I'm pretty sick and I need to take this more seriously. Um, so I almost learned how to live with the regurgitation and vomiting symptoms for a pretty long time where I started to lose a grip of what was normal. Um, but it wasn't until I would say around the rise of the pandemic where we were notified about these new symptoms to start paying attention to. Um, and one of them was shortness of breath. And I, I constantly felt like I couldn't breathe, which made me think I had COVID. However, I, I was never testing positive for COVID. So it started to raise my attention to seek help. Um, I would say a huge turn of it was around the summer of 2021, where I, you know, I mentioned the symptoms really started to take a turn. Um, I, was troubling, I was struggling to keep down food. I, I was struggling to maintain my weight. I was struggling to, to thrive as a human. Um, so that's when I really started to get aggressive with, okay, we need to figure out what's going on here and how can we go about solving this problem? How bad did those symptoms get? I mean, you, you lost weight, but did it, did it even go on a more sinister route, if you will? Yeah, it, it was tough. Um, I, I tried to, you know, growing up, I tried to thrive in all aspects of my life. Um, I was going through my summer internship. I remember I was trying to land a full-time job heading into my senior year of college. There was a lot of exciting things going on, um, but definitely my, my health was taking a toll on me, trying to fill all these buckets that I, I usually am able to fill. Um, so I, I remember, I think it was like August or July of, of the summer of 2021, um, it was almost, I struggled to go a week without vomiting. So it was almost like I'd wake up, I'd vomit, I'd go do my job. Um, I, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and try to catch my breath. I, I almost felt like I was, I was drowning in the middle of the night. Um, and then the, the weight loss too, I, I started to get really like almost obsessed with, can I maintain this weight, right? And, and try to keep going. Um, with what my my usual body used to respond to. Um, so I remember every morning I'd, I'd particularly try to eat something, right, and see if I'd naturally gain weight. And the the scale would show the opposite. So um, I think it was it was an overall battle of, one, my symptoms picking up, and then, two, me starting to get more worried about, okay, this is not my how my normal body responds. Um, how can I 
try to make this better, right? With while also remaining patient um, with the with the story I had here, seeing a bunch of um, doctors and uh, checkups and all those kind of medical responsibilities I tried to take up on. How many doctors did you see? And were they just one specialist? I mean, how do you even begin with that? Yeah, so I mentioned um, I did have uh, forms of gastro symptoms growing up that I, I did put on the back burner as I was able to to live my typical life when I was younger. It didn't stop me from, you know, being a typical child, playing sports, going to school. Um, I almost just learned that it was normal to to get food stuck in your throat and and puke every once in a while. But that I've definitely learned that that's not the case. Um, so without that those symptoms in mind, I went to my primary care physician with the the main symptom of shortness of breath. Um, and I, I described it as, you know, I, it wasn't like I was constantly out of breath. There was just episodes where I felt like I went on a four mile run. Um, and I, you know, that last breath, when you start to walk and slow down, I just never could get that anymore. Um, so I started there. Um, and, and given we were still in the pandemic, so it was hard to get immediate results at sure, the time. Sure. Yeah. So I went over to my, um, I, I had a general nurse practitioner and she was able to give me a, a rescue inhaler at the time as it was, it was difficult to go seek help for that immediate shortness of breath that I was, was feeling. So, so you ended up with an inhaler for a GI condition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I give the doctors credit too, right? Because me explaining my symptoms, I was describing shortness of breath. Um, and that's just one small sure. piece to the puzzle where maybe I could have said, hey, I, I'm not digesting my food all the time. But that that's just, once again, me overlooking um, something that I almost considered normal to my body at the time. How much testing did you have to undergo before they actually got to the diagnosis? Yeah, so it started to be a chase. Um, as my symptoms got worse, I definitely got more eager to to seek a diagnosis. Um, so after reflecting, you know, I'm not able to keep food down anymore. I naturally went to the allergist, um, as my sister has a history of um, a bunch of different allergies, and we've had a great relationship with him. Um, and, and he actually mentioned, uh, Dr. Eugene Gaddy, he mentioned in my weight chart and he was like, why is no one looking at the weight chart? Um, so from there, I was able to go to um, gastro. Um, and we also actually went to the gynecologist to see if there was a, a thyroid issue. Um, as I'm, I'm not too familiar, but he was almost concerned with maybe my thyroids were, were leading sure. to a consistent weight loss there. So they really were pointing you to, it sounds like, you know, for something in the, in the, in the gut system, it was the lungs, the GYN system. I, I, I guess, you know, if someone has an unusual condition, I, I bet there'll be a listener out there that's listening to your story uh, and, you know, that they don't know the answer and they don't know what the diagnosis is. They don't even know what specialty to go see. What's the best advice you have for that person? Yeah, I, th I think definitely if I could uh, bring this all together, I, I would say that, you know, explaining all aspects of your health to the, the physician or doctor, um, it may not tie into every piece of the symptoms that come ar around. So maybe shortness of breath wasn't a direct symptom of eosinophilic esophagitis. But, you know, if I was sharing more about my gastro issues, I think that that could have painted a clearer picture to not only help myself, but also help um, the physician trying to diagnose the condition. Madeline, I know you have a blog that you describe your experience. Can you uh, tell us uh, what the name of the blog is and where listeners can find it? Yeah, so I uh, run a blog on Instagram. It's called Eosinophilic Chick. Um, basically, I, I share my story as I'm going through the six food elimination diet which is one of the treatment options for this condition. Um, I also share some recipes and other advice for individuals who face um, this disease or also um, food allergy related illnesses. So uh, definitely check it out. I appreciate that. And Madeline, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
To all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're discussing medical odysseys, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jserven. We're going to add another perspective to this story, and that is of the doctors. We have Madeline's doctor, Dr. Crystal Lynch. She is an associate professor of clinical medicine, a director of the GI Physiology Laboratory, and the director of the Advanced Esophageal Fellowship in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Dr. Lynch, welcome to our show. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. It is great to have you here. Uh, we, you just heard Madeline uh, has described her story, her odyssey, if you will. I know you're a gastroenterologist, but just to our listeners who may not know, can you explain to our listeners what kind of doctor that is? Sure. So a gastroenterologist is a doctor essentially of the entire digestive system. So that would include everything from the esophagus uh, through to the stomach, small bowel, colon or large bowel and rectum. And we also take care of biliary organs like the pancreas, gallbladder and liver. So I myself subspecialize in diseases of the esophagus. So you heard Madeline's story. How common are stories like hers? So Stories like hers are uncommon, but for a subspecialist like myself, unfortunately, we do see stories like this not infrequently. And, you know, it is sort of heartbreaking to see someone go through so much um, and have a delay to diagnosis. But like Madeline was saying, it can be very tricky when the symptoms aren't classic, right? So sometimes when we are a perhaps second or third opinion, or if the symptoms have been going on for a long time, I will tell the patient, if this was straightforward, it probably already would have been diagnosed. You probably wouldn't be here. So we need to think outside the box of, even though these symptoms aren't fitting into a classic presentation for a common disorder, what else could it be? And let's stretch a little and investigate a little bit further in that sense with that in mind. Got it. So let's uh, focus on her condition, uh, eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, short as EOE. What is that? That's a very scary sounding term. It is. So eosinophilic esophagitis, uh, much easier said as EOE, it's essentially this chronic or or long-term allergic condition of the esophagus. And it's very different in children and adults. So it's, it's sort of interesting hearing, you know, Madeline's story over time. But in adults, which is sort of my world, the most common symptoms are trouble swallowing food or getting food down, the sensation of food moving slowly throughout the chest, as well as actually food impaction, which is food becoming lodged in the patient's chest and they're unable to swallow it down or get it up. And that often requires it an emergency room visit. Chest pain is a symptom in adults and sometimes heartburn. Now in children, it's a much more broad presentation. So it could be difficult, difficulty getting a younger child to eat, uh, pickiness of food, the, the, child appears very picky, but it's unclear why, abdominal pain, regurgitation, um, or weight loss, or what we call failure to thrive, where the patient is not growing in accordance with what you would usually expect or how you would expect a child to grow. So it really can vary um, in the symptoms that it produces depending on uh, the patient. Is this condition considered rare? I mean, as per you know, the diagnosis that you were mentioning, or the criteria you were mentioning, I'm sorry, yes, um, it's definitely rare in the U.S. Interestingly, the uh, incidence and prevalence of EOE, so the, the amount that we see occurring in new cases versus um, and how much we have, uh, how much we see, it varies by country. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so really depends where you are around the world. But currently, I would say the range is about five to 10 cases per 100,000 for incidents. Wow. So yes, this is a rare disease. I have to mention that we are certainly finding more of it every year. Um, this is likely due to increased awareness of eosinophilic esophagitis, as well as true increase in incidence. Got it. What causes this? So eosinophilic esophagitis is essentially an allergic condition of the esophagus, but it's a different type of allergy than, for example, anaphylaxis to nuts or the classic food allergies that one would consider. It's unclear exactly what causes it, but it's likely an interplay of you know, genetic factors as well as environmental factors. When it comes to this diagnosis, you've already mentioned uh, about Madeline's journey herself and, and the fact that uh, it isn't the most typical, but uh, is, this, is this story jive, at least in the adult patients, or, or not really? It, it's pretty straightforward uh, for different age groups. Yeah, it, it can be difficult to diagnose, especially in patients who you know, I feel like have gone on a long time with various symptoms, as opposed to someone who presents later as an adult with the classic, you know, food impaction, had food stuck, went to the ER, had it removed, and has had trouble swallowing for months and months. That's sort of the simple diagnosis. But when people start out when they're younger and are not diagnosed and then have various other symptoms that may not be within the GI system, it can be a little bit trickier to diagnose. Nevertheless, physically, it's actually pretty simple to diagnose via biopsies of the esophagus on something called an upper endoscopy, okay. which is simply an examination of the esophagus, stomach, and small bowel with a camera. How hard is it to treat? So there are various treatment options for eosinophilic esophagitis. I sort of categorize them in my head as medications or diet. So diet's tricky because patients will ask, why don't I just go to an allergist and get skin, uh, skin testing and blood testing yeah. <laughs> and then avoid whatever I test positive to, right? So that does not work for eosinophilic esophagitis, unfortunately. We do treat with elimination diets, um, but we, we don't really have the perfect test for diet. And so, you know, the ease of diet depends on the patient and how easy that is for them to do. Uh, someone like Madeline, who's a rock star, is making it seem very easy when it's not. Um, and then when we're looking at medications, there's various medication options, everything from proton pump inhibitors, which are essentially acid blockers, but they also block inflammatory pathways, uh, to topical or swallowed steroids, uh, such as budesonide or fluticasone that patients will swallow to coat the esophagus. And there's the first FDA-approved medication out for eosinophilic esophagitis called dupilumab, which is a uh, injection medication that's taken once a week. So there's various treatment options, and they all have, you know, decent success rates, over okay. 60 to 70 percent, wow. but it really depends on what the patient chooses. So what's the prognosis for this condition overall? Yeah, so usually we're able to get most patients' symptoms and inflammation under control via using medications or diet, and rarely a combination of the two in very refractory cases. If listeners, you know, are listening to this story and they may see themselves in what Madeline has said or perhaps in some of the symptoms you've described, Dr. Lynch, uh, what advice do you have for them to best navigate the healthcare system to get to the right diagnosis, uh, given just the complexity of some of these stories? Yeah, it's it's really very tricky. I would really say remember that having trouble swallowing is not normal. I, I, I hate hearing when the patients say, oh, I was just eating too quickly or I ate the wrong thing. And that's why, you know, I figured it was normal. No, you know, you, you trust yourself. If doesn't something does not feel normal, 
you really need to discuss it with your doctor. And usually that's first going to be your primary care doctor who will usually refer you to a GI physician. It, it really can be tricky navigating the healthcare system, but you know, I will encourage patients to be their own advocate and certainly please do not downplay your symptoms. Let me uh, let me bring Madeline back into the conversation for a moment. Uh, Madeline, uh, hearing all of this, uh, is there anything you wish you or your doctors did differently? Um, I wouldn't say I wish my doctors did anything differently. Um, but kind of going off what Dr. Lynch said, I think being an advocate for myself, um, there was a lot of testing I went through to pin down to the final diagnosis. And it was pretty troubling to see that a lot of these tests came back clear. It was almost like I was hoping for something to be wrong so that I could finally be diagnosed. Um, so what I recommend is continuing to advocate for yourself. Um, I knew something was wrong and I, I didn't stop um, continuing to communicate with my doctors until we were able to successfully find this diagnosis. I, I'm just curious on this. Uh, I know that they had given you different uh, diagnoses, Madeline. Um, what were examples of some wrong diagnosis that were given to you before the right one? Yeah, so I think um, being a college student, I, I was bucketed in with, you know, having typical anxiety, um, which leading to further asthma diagnoses was two of the initial startups that I've had. Um, and then speaking with gastro, um, he never officially diagnosed me. He just shared his suspicions. Um, but he thought of H. pylori, um, stomach ulcers, food allergies. Um, and then, like I mentioned earlier, the, the thyroid issues, they were a little concerned if that could be a potential um, issue I was experiencing. And these were all given to you before they got to, to the uh, final one uh, at the end of the picture, if you will. Yes, uh, that was as soon as they ran a biopsy, um, they were able to find that my eosinophil count was heightened. And that really um, closed that door and opened up the other where I was starting to um, begin my relationship and work with Dr. Lynch. Uh, Madeline, one more question. Uh, how did all of these diagnoses impact your mental health? Uh, it was tough. Um, I remember like just trying to convince myself, you know, like, okay, this is what's wrong with me and that's it. And there's nothing I can do about it. Um, and it was difficult to almost accept some of these diagnoses that I, I knew at the bottom of my heart weren't correct because I wasn't feeling better. Um, so I, I think that being able to validate my own symptoms to myself was definitely the hardest part as I, I went through a lot of testing and it, it consistently came back as I'm a healthy individual and everything's fine. Um, so I think that was the hardest part to, to hear throughout this process. Dr. Lynch, is, uh, the, is that the typical uh, part of uh, these medical odysseys that people undergo? Uh, and I know you're a specialist. I mean, is that, is, is that mental health piece of like not being heard or uh, not getting the right diagnosis, is that the biggest burden, if you will, besides not getting the right diagnosis that people face in these situations? I mean, it's definitely a huge problem. I'll also sort of add to the list in my clinical experience of patients being misdiagnosed with sort of simple acid reflux. And I've also had um, younger patients diagnosed with eating disorders um, before ultimately finding that they in fact have eosinophilic esophagitis. So really depending on how long this plays out and what you're sort of diagnosed with, I can certainly see, you know, different severity of tolls it really takes on mental health. Dr. Lynch, uh, where can patients and our listeners get accurate and reputable information on this topic? I want to make sure that uh, we give people at least resources uh, to get that. Yeah, certainly. So there are a couple great websites. Um, there's CureEd, which is the campaign urging research for eosinophilic diseases. It's CUREDfoundation.org. And it's, it's a nonprofit foundation and it's dedicated to patients suffering from different eosinophilic diseases, including EOE, 
And there actually are a couple other ones in the GI system, like eosinophilic gastritis, which are in fact even more rare than EOE. Um, they also raise money to aid in research benefiting these patients. And then APFED, A-P-F-E-D, okay. that's the American Partnership for Eosinophilic Disorders. And this is actually a nonprofit, I believe, started by a group of mothers whose children had eosinophilic diseases. And so this is a patient advocacy group um, who, who basically fights to improve the lives of patients with eosinophilic disorders and to further that research. And so there's a lot of good resources on their websites, but also um, places for patients with these disorders, if they're listening, to get support, um, especially with the patient advocacy groups. Great information. Madeline, uh, what do you hope our listeners take away from listening to our interview today, from your experience? Uh, what do you hope to convey? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is finding a, a, a typical condition odyssey like mine. Um, if we all could find the direct answer, right? Like, here's my symptoms and this is my diagnosis on both ends of the spectrum with me and then my physician, we all would, would choose that option, right? Um, so I think the biggest takeaway is it's as hard as it sounds is to be patient and just know that eventually there will be someday that you will get that answer you're looking for, um, whether it's a diagnosis or some sort of relief, just know that it, it is on its way, whether it, it takes a bit or not, um, it will come and you just have to continue holding on to that hope. Great answer there. And Dr. Lynch, uh, what do you hope to convey to our listeners uh, that also just may find themselves either looking for a diagnosis, whether it's gastrointestinal or any other organ system, uh, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, I agree with what Madeline had to say. And also I would just remind listeners to continue to search and really be an advocate for yourself and trust yourself. If you're feeling like a symptom is, is really not being explained or helped by your diagnosis, then you know, I would reach back out to your provider. You know, doctors are here to listen. And when, you know, sometimes we may think that the patient is, you know, feeling better regarding a certain condition, and it's really helpful to make sure that you're communicating um, so that we can best help you. Madeline, one more time, remind us of the name of your blog. Yeah, so my blog's name is eosinophilic chick, um, eosinophilic.chick on Instagram. Um, you can likely look up eosinophilic esophagitis on Google um, related to Instagram blogs, and you'll be able to navigate to my blog from there. Perfect. I want to thank you, uh, Madeline Levithan, for sharing your story. I'm glad that things are on uh, the upswing and that they got the right diagnosis and you have exceptional care. And I want to thank you, Dr. Lynch, not only for your care of uh, Maddie Levithan here, but for just all the wonderful advice and wisdom you've offered us today. Oh, you're so welcome. It was absolutely a pleasure. Thank you for having us on. It has been wonderful to have you both on. We've been talking to uh, Madeline Levithan. She has eosinophilic esophagitis, and she's been describing her medical odyssey to us. And we've been talking to her physician, Dr. Crystal Lynch, who's the Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine, Director of the GI Physiology Laboratory, and Director of the Advanced Esophageal Fellowship in the Division of Gastroenterology at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And up next, we look at yet another medical odyssey condition, pancreatic cancer. Dr. Niraj Gusani joins us. We'll be right back. you dare to dream really do come true someday I'll wish 
perch upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, that's where Patients with genetic conditions, especially children, often struggle to find an answer. Families of children with undiagnosed genetic diseases often face an uncertain and unpredictable journey, referred to as a diagnostic odyssey. The average diagnostic odyssey lasts for eight years. During that time, there are two things that unite families, hope and perseverance. Whole genome sequencing now has the power to help doctors diagnose genetic diseases in days and helps parents avoid months or years of inconclusive tests hospital visits, costly treatments, and sleepless nights. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow, why, oh, why can't I? The world is a big place, and sometimes it is hard to know if a seemingly small gesture like donating to this station makes a dent. But $5 buys more batteries for the recorder I'm using right now, and $10, that's enough gas to get a reporter at this station to their next news story. Hey, it's Sarah Gonzalez from NPR's Planet Money. Your help goes a long way. Give now. Please call 353-9528 or visit us at wjct.org radio. Thank you, First Coast, for doing your part. To make the Mr. Rogers sweater drive such a success, with over 6,000 pounds of donations, your generous contributions of sweaters, jackets, and blankets have been donated to local area shelters. And a special thanks to our sponsors, who make this possible. From all of us at WJCT, thank you. For the best music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, tune into 89.9 HD3, the WJCT app, or jacksmusic.org. We've got your music on Anthology on 89.9 HD3. Calling all VPK through fifth grade educators and experts. WJCT is seeking creative, innovative breakout sessions for Teach on Saturday, February 25th, 2023. Proposals accepted until January 3rd. Visit WJCT.org teach to apply. Hey, it's Kaleo from NPR's World Cafe. Whether it's new indie artists or massive pop stars, we highlight musicians because we think their work is compelling and we think you'll enjoy their songs. People, not algorithms, curate the music you hear on this station for you. And you're not just our listeners. You're our number one source of financial support. Your donation powers this station. So give right now. And thanks. Please call 353-9528 or visit us at wjct.org radio. upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops that's where you the digestive system has its own brain referred to as the enteric nervous system this nervous system fires off commands such as producing hormones controlling muscle contraction and can even send a message to the brain to stop eating. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? We continue our journey through medical Oz today as we delve into medical odysseys. 
We just heard from a patient and her doctor regarding a chronic condition that literally impacted everything she ate. The prognosis is good, but what happens if the prognosis is not as optimistic? We'll now look at pancreatic cancer, a rare cancer often associated with a medical odyssey that has gotten a lot of attention lately given the number of celebrities who have succumbed to it. To name a few, Alex Trebek, Steve Jobs, Aretha Franklin, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg have all died from pancreatic cancer. Dr. Niraj Gusani joins us now from Jacksonville. Dr. Gusani is Chief of Surgical Oncology at Baptist MD Anderson Cancer Center, and welcome back to our show. Thank you, Dr. Servan. It's such a great pleasure to be back with you, and I'm delighted to talk about uh, a, a topic which I'm uh, very invested in. Fantastic. Let's start us off. What is pancreatic cancer? Is it just one thing? Is it more than one thing? How do you define it for us? Well, let's start by talking about the pancreas. The pancreas is a uh, lesser known organ in the digestive tract. It sits in the back of the abdomen behind the stomach and surrounded by some major blood vessels. This comes into play later as uh, problems of the pancreas can be hard to diagnose and treat. The pancreas does two major things. It produces insulin and other hormones that help us with our sugar control, and it produces digestive enzymes, which help us metabolize and uh, take care of fatty foods when we eat them. So pancreatic cancer is an overgrowth of the cells in the pancreas, the two types of, one of the two types of cells, which grow out of control and form a mass. Uh, and that's sort of generally what we call pancreatic cancer. The most common type of pancreatic cancer, and the one we'll probably focus on today, is the overgrowth of the ductal or gland cells, the ones that make the digestive enzymes. So how common is this? Unfortunately, it's quite common. Uh, pancreatic cancer is uh, in the top 10 cancers uh, in the United States, uh, and it affects 62,000 Americans every single year. Why is this condition hard to diagnose early? And what it is, what is it often mistaken for? Yeah, and if I may, let me just tell you the um, survival statistics. So we, we talked about how common it is, but it's actually much deadlier uh, compared to other cancers. And so unfortunately, pancreatic cancer is the third most common cancer killer in the United States, killing over 42,000 Americans. Uh, and it will soon be the second most common cancer killer because we're doing better at treating other cancers than we are at pancreatic cancer, where the average survival rate uh, at five years is about 10%. Um, so pancreatic cancer is incredibly hard to diagnose and treat because of a late appearance of symptoms. The symptoms of pancreatic cancer are often things that can be mistaken for a lot of other GI conditions, things like abdominal pain, bloating, feeling full fast, uh, having dark urine, light stools, and itching, and developing a yellow color to the, stint, uh, to the skin called jaundice. Um, so these things can happen and they can be due to a lot of other problems. Uh, and only later do we find sometimes that they're related to pancreatic cancer. So often, as I just heard what you just described, uh, bloating and just a general sense of discomfort, uh, that sounds like anything. Uh, is that fair to say in terms of uh, trying to diagnose this? Exactly right. And so in most patients, those symptoms will not be from pancreatic cancer. And so people will have a workup for uh, reflux disease or uh, gallbladder problems or other things. And only later do we realize that uh, sure enough, this is uh, coming from pancreatic cancer. But as the symptoms uh, continue, as they progress, people start having weight loss and other things, uh, it's, it's time to really listen to your body and to get checked out and to um, keep attention on the symptoms to figure out what they might be, uh, because of course they could represent something more sinister like a cancer. So what's the prognosis if someone gets this diagnosis? 
Well, it is improving, but it's still overall quite poor. So the average person uh, in whom we diagnose pancreatic cancer already has advanced disease, which spread to other organs, and uh, they generally will pass away from the disease. So of all the people we diagnose, the five-year survival, which is when we consider people cured, is about 10 or 11%. And compared to most other cancers, that's a pretty dismal number. However, if we do catch the cancer early enough, uh, there are many, many treatment options at every stage uh, and potentially even curative options uh, for patients at early stage cancer, which is why we focus so many efforts on uh, early detection and getting people to treatment when they are diagnosed. So you give me a sense of hope because there's apparently a lot of treatments, uh, but it's still this high cancer killer because of the timing of when it comes to the attention of the doctor. Is that, is that the fair way of framing it? Exactly right. So unfortunately, as we'll get to uh, later, uh, there's no good screening test for pancreatic cancer. And so we find it when it becomes symptomatic because the pancreas is in the back of the abdomen, those symptoms uh, occur late in the course of the disease and mimic other more common illnesses. And so we find pancreatic cancer late and often uh, are, uh, it's quite advanced before we can treat it. If we are, uh, once we are able to find it, there are treatments at every stage that can uh, improve survival and improve quality of life. And at early stages, there are curative treatments. And so that's the important message here of hope that uh, as soon as we find out about your pancreatic cancer, we can talk about different treatment options based on uh, uh, the specific type of cancer and the stage. What kind of treatment are we talking about? Is this surgery? Is this chemotherapy? Is it radiation? What are the most common types of therapies that's offered here? Yeah, so you, you uh, thankfully highlighted the most common forms of cancer treatment, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. And often pancreatic cancer patients get a combination of treatments. So almost everyone nowadays starts with chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is the only way to treat the entire body. Uh, we give uh, drugs either by mouth or through the veins that can go to every single cell and treat the cancer wherever it is. So we like to uh, treat cancer, especially pancreatic cancer with chemotherapy to try to shrink the amount of disease and treat any spread there might be there uh, first before we would do more local therapies like surgery or radiation. But if found early, patients will often get all three, almost certainly getting chemotherapy and surgery, sometimes radiation as well. Dr. Gusani, if a patient is struggling with concerns that they may have this cancer, what's the best advice you have for them? Yeah, it's a, a, a great question. You know, sometimes uh, patients will have a feeling uh, that something's just not right. And as I said, it is important to sort of get yourself checked out. If you have an alteration to your body that you don't think is right, and if it's uh, not responding to the usual treatments, uh, you need to seek treatment uh, with a trusted physician. It can be your primary care doctor, your GI physician, uh, and so on. And often the workup will involve uh, some blood tests or some imaging uh, by which we can sometimes find these cancers. But being persistent about the fact that something's not right uh, is really important here. Dr. Gusani, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this super important topic. Uh, we really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Niraj Usani. He is Chief of Surgical Oncology at the Baptist MD Anderson Cancer Center here in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Gary Autry is our intern. Next week's program is our Christmas show. If you have ideas for or questions about a topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362 
email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jserbin. I'm Dr. Joe Serbin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.